If you've got your Bible, turn to the book of Acts. If you, didn't, if you didn't happen to bring a Bible, there's a Bible probably in the bench in front of you. And the book of Acts is where we're going to start reading today in the very first chapter. Um, today is the start of something I think significant for our church, very significant for our church. We're going to take the next six weeks and we're going to focus in on simply one of the 66 sections of the Bible, what we all commonly call the book of Acts. And uh, it's, uh, some people call it the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but it's, it's the Acts of the very first followers of Jesus, what they did once Jesus was gone. And um, it is actually one of the really great sequels that you, you can find. You know how there's not very many great sequels? I mean, you go see the first epic movie, and you're like, that's such a great movie. I can hardly wait for the sequel. And then you go to the sequel, and you're like, oh, okay. Not as innovative, not as exciting, not as... Like, think of all the sequels that were better than the original. Wait, what? I got a suggestion out here. What? Which one? Rocky. Rocky. <laughs> you mean Rocky 2 was better than Rocky 1. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, but Rocky 5 was not better than Rocky 1. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> right. Or Empire Strikes Back. Okay, it's debatable, but I think, you know, you could say there's an, there was maybe an uptick there in uh, between that one. Uh, and there might be some other ones. There's a million Batman movies. You can argue about sequels that might be better than the, than the original. Um, but this is one of the really great sequels, and in a way, now hang on, you might, some of you might want to throw a stone at me when you hear this, in a, say, in a way, this is actually almost better than the original. Now you're saying, whoa, 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 don't go that far. I wouldn't go that far if Jesus hadn't himself almost gone that far. This is what Jesus said in, in John uh, chapter, uh, I think it's 14 and verse 7, he says, but truly I tell you, it's for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. It's for your good. The next chapter, the sequel is good, right? So if the, if, you know, they're really just puffing up, you know, a movie. You should really go see this movie, spend your 7 to $12, whatever theater you end up in, right, on this. It really go. It's one thing, you know, to hear the actors and director to say that. But if Jesus recommends something, he says, this is good, then it's really going to be good. And this is some of the good he describes. He says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit will do something about that. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. You know, for me, one of the automatics of why the book of Acts might be a a great sequel is the fact that when Jesus was with the disciples, that was incredible, but it was all located in a very finite geographical location. But he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with each one of you. And when that happens, this thing's on. This thing's a spreading thing. This thing's a huge thing. This thing's, it, it's, it's got massive potential. So, so we're reading through the book of Acts. Well, because it's a really great sequel. Also because it's, it's, to be honest, and this is just purely a light and trite reason, it's a really great page turner. 
If you want to pick any book in the Bible that you think is, that you think, well I, well, I want to read a really interesting part. Maybe you've never read any parts of the Bible for yourself before. Start with the book of Acts. It's a great one to start with because it's actually quite exciting to read. Um, let me give you three examples, okay? When you get to the very end of the book, this, you have to wait for this one, there's a really great shipwreck story. I won't tell you the story, but it's found in Acts 27. A really great shipwreck story. Lots of cool details. If you're into boats, you'll like it. Um, also in Acts chapter 20, there's an all-night church event that leads to someone dying. Hey, how cool is that? You know, if you like adventure, you say church isn't exciting enough. Well, this church service was uh, more than exciting. All right? And if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, there is a chapter just for you. Acts chapter 13. Now, here's what I say. If you're a true Lord of the Rings fan, I dare you to do this. Read Acts chapter 13 this week, then come see me next week, look me right in the eye, and tell me that J.R.R. Tolkien was not thinking of, or did not get... Read Acts 13, and then this is what... This is, i got to get it straight in my head. <laughs> you should see what's happening in my head. Uh, <laughs> Tell me that J.R.R. Tolkien did not get Grima Wormtongue, King Theoden, and Gandalf seen from Acts chapter 13. Tell me that. Look me straight in the eye and tell me that. If you're a true Lord of the Rings fan, I don't think you'll be able to say it, right? So look for King Theoden, Grima Wormtongue, and Gandalf, and you're going to see that J.R.R. Tolkien, who is a devout Catholic and a believer and actually helped lead C.S. Lewis to Christ, Stole it right out of Axed. He stole it. Okay, so that's only for, now I'm going to take off my elf ears and come back from Comic-Con and get on to preaching. But that's just for the geeks like me. Okay. Uh, it's, it's an incredible, um, exciting read. I, I've, you know, just read through it all again last week and I just was like, this is really amazing. Uh, here, now let me get down to some really nitty-gritty for our church for Hillcrest, why, why we're going through the book of Acts. Let me tell you a few things. I don't know how all these things connect, and I don't know what God is up to, right? It says in the scripture that his paths are beyond tracing out. It's true. You sort of get glimpses of what he's doing, but you don't get the whole blueprint. God doesn't send you an update and say, this is all that I did in your life last week. This is all I did in your church last week. This is what I'm doing in the future. You don't get that. You just get the hints and the nudgings and the leadings and you follow and you find out what the adventure is as you go. But here's some things that make me think the book of Acts might really fit where we're at as a church. One of the things we're doing this year is we're sending out one of our best couples, Rod and Cheryl Barks, to Toronto to plant churches. Not just a church, churches, a network of churches. Some of you were here when we had them up and interviewed them. We'll get them up again. Uh, just as, you know, they're in their 50s going on a brand new adventure to the GTA because they feel God has called them to do that. And that has stirred the faith of a lot of people in our church. In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some people just decide that they should go to Toronto as well and help plant the church. I don't know what God's plan is, but it's got me wondering. Okay? Of course, Acts talks about planting churches. What if Hillcrest, perhaps, in its near future, is meant to plant a church? I don't know if that's in our near future, but what if? Well, it's really important to look at those kind of things. Maybe God wants to, uh, I believe for sure that God wants to take this, the gospel to people in Moose Jaw who are like us, but the book of Acts also describes how they took the gospel to people who were not like them, and I believe God wants us to do that as well. 
God wants to take the gospel to people in Moose Jaw who are like us and ones who are very different from us or from you, right? You and me. I don't know what role God may have us play in encouraging and strengthening other churches. Maybe some of the good things that God does here, he's going he's to enable us to take it out to other churches, uh, to go bless churches and encourage them and, and, uh, and strengthen them. I'm, we're having our set-free retreat again in November, our second set-free retreat. It's, I'm really excited about it. We're going to invite a few leaders and significant people from some other churches to come and say, come, check this out. Maybe this is something we could help lead you into in the future and help coach you with. We're just newbies and rookies, but we're excited about what God's doing in this area of of being set free from all sorts of uh, things that keep us from following Jesus. So, uh, yeah, maybe God's got a role there. But no matter what God has in the future, I'm absolutely convinced, I'm absolutely convinced whatever he has for us in the future, we're going to need the power of God. We're going to need the power of God in the future. And so Acts talks about the power of God, and let's just get right into it. Acts chapter 1, you're going to find out as we go. Here we go. In my former book, again, this, remember, it's a sequel. It's a sequel to the book of Acts. Luke wrote this. Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. So actually, he wrote a lot of our New Testament, to be honest, uh, a big, big chunk of it. And he says, in my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus is who he wrote both books to, Okay, so Theophilus was the recipient of both. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. Now, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts overlap. Okay, so if you took those two books and just overlapped, that's what would happen. And so we're getting, this is some of the overlap that you'll also find in Luke, and I'll show you that in a bit. So let's keep going. After his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, he, pre- he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, right? And he gave his followers convincing proofs so they could be confident of that. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. 40 days is important. We'll talk about that in a, in a second or two. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, I'm going to boil it down super small, but it's this concept that of the availability of God, that God is close, right? Jesus went preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the connection that you can have with God, this new covenant that, we, that, you know, that Jesus talked about, it's really close. God is really, God's availability has never been more available. <laughs> it's, it's really significant. So the kingdom of God is like, okay, there's the kingdoms of Rome and the kingdoms of the world that people were familiar with. They say, but there's a spiritual kingdom that God has established and is establishing on the earth, and it's where people get into relationship with God, they recognize his kingly authority over everything, that Jesus is Lord of all, and then they come under that authority as well, and they claim Jesus as their king, and they live counterculturally to the world around them. They live very differently from, from the world around them. They live for God. They live for God as their, as their king. So the, the, this God is available. You can have a relationship with him. He'll lead you. Uh, you'll live a very countercultural life for God. And that's the short version of the kingdom of God that I'm sharing today. So Jesus taught them about this. And on one occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered around him and said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still a little confused about the kingdom, thinking it was like a literal kingdom with armies and, you know, that would overthrow Rome. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk, so they just walked into the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Basically all the disciples, or 11 of them. Judas was dead. Anyhow, long story. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So there was a, a, a bigger group than just, the tw- just those guys. All right. So again, I said this was a sequel, right? Wouldn't it be great if your devotions were like a sequel? You know, you open the Bible, and it's, you know how TV shows do that for you? It's like you watch it, and then it's like they think you're so dumb that you wouldn't remember what happened last week, so they show you a pre, or a, sort of what happened last week to lead you into the new movie. Or into the, but it would be helpful if devotions did that, right? Last time you read previously in the Bible, you know, it'd be just really great if that happened. But anyhow, that's sort of what's happening here is actually they're saying, Theophilus, remember the letter I sent you? Remember the things I described? Well, I'm going to start back there and then I'm going to run into this, this whole new adventure. Well, I'm going to just jump back into the previous adventure, into Luke chapter 24, okay, and verse uh, 45. Um, Actually, we'll go to 46. He says, this is what is written, Luke 24, 46. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send, I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power. From on high. And when he led them out of the city of, uh, into the vicinity of, uh, led them out into the vicinity of Beth- Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So you've got these, these two accounts. He's written some details in one of them, some details in the other. If you put them together, you actually find this really neat coming together of two details, and that's the two places they hung out. Okay, remember I said the 40 days is important? Passover is the time about Jesus' death. Pentecost is a feast that's 50 days later. Jesus spent 40 days with them, give or take, depending on the resurrection and all that stuff. So what's left is 10 days. So when Jesus tells them to wait, stay in Jerusalem and wait He's saying, basically, well, they don't know it. It's open-ended for them. They're just, they're just being obedient. But he knows it's 10 days. Wait for 10 days. 10 days of preparation. 
10 days. And what do they do in those 10 days? Well, there's two locations they hang out in. The first one we read about in, in, um, in uh, Acts, and that was the location of this upstairs room where they gathered to pray. And the other location they hang out is in the synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship. And they go there, and what do they do there? They praise God. So they're praying in this upstairs room more in secret, and they're praising God in public in, this, in, in the synagogue. Two places. Now, I assume lots of them had to do their everyday jobs, and farmers had to farm, and fishermen had to fish, and all sorts of things, but they're, they're constantly coming back into Jerusalem, meeting in these common locations, and they're praying. And maybe some of them didn't. Maybe some of them just sort of let the crops and let the fish and let all those things sort of go on, you know, autopilot for a bit, and they just sort of waited. But it was 10 days of preparation in these two locations, the upper room and the temple. See, Acts 1 verse 8, I think, is the the key verse of the entire book of Acts. If, If you read the book of Acts and you say, hey, I'm in this chapter, what's happening here? What's happening here is what Jesus said would happen in chapter 1 and verse 8. Let's read it again. It says, 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Okay, so Jesus tells them these three things in that verse. First, he tells them what his purpose is, right? We are called to be Jesus' witnesses. Now, these first guys were witnesses in a very special way in that they literally had seen with their eyes and and experienced all the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. They experienced all that stuff. So they were literally witnesses. You know, the neat thing about the book of Acts, oh, it's a spoiler. Okay, if you haven't read the book of Acts plug, and you don't want any spoilers, just plug your ears or say la, 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 sing the Flintstone song, whatever's going to work for you, okay? At the end of the book of Acts, some people probably have their ears plugged. At the end of the book of Acts, there's, the main characters are still alive. Now, that's very significant. Do you know why that's significant? It's because if they were dead, that would be recorded in the book of Acts. So that tells you that the book of Acts was written really quite soon after the life of Jesus. Now, a lot of people say, oh, it was written 300 years later. People are just sort of, you know, making up a nice story. No, this was written in, and actually the Acts, book of Acts is so full of characters. It is character rich. In fact, so many people are in this story that you get just one line. In fact, I was just talking about this one guy. It's like, one guy gets in there for one line. It's like, after this had happened, they went to Jason's house. That's literally in there. They went to Jason's house. That's all we know about Jason. But if you lived at that time and someone wrote the book of Acts and they wrote wrong stuff in it, you could be like, so, Jason, it says they went to your house afterwards. Is that true? <laughs> no, that didn't happen, right? It's, it's amazing. It's so good. Some people think this is, oh, this was written and, and scholars got this wrong and way after. No, this was written early. Paul was still alive. Peter was still alive. They could, anyone could go and talk to people and say, hey, Peter, it says that you went into Jerusalem, you got in trouble. This, or, Paul, you went to Jerusalem, you got in trouble because you're hanging out with Trophimus. Where you hang out with Trophimus? And they could check that out. Right? All these things were, they were written early, and we know they were written early because they didn't even know the end of the story. They didn't know that, how Paul would die when, they, when Luke wrote this. Didn't know how Peter would die. This was written 
very early. It's a very cool book. I, I just throw that out for apologetics buffs who love that stuff and probably already know that stuff. It's just really exciting. But he said, we're called to be witnesses. So their witnesses, the eyewitnesses were around when these things were written. But this was not just going to be, witnesses of Jesus' resurrection was not just going to be something that these initial people were going to have the role to carry. It was going to carry on from generation to generation to generation. It was going to come all the way to us. It's going to come all the way to us. Now you say, well, I didn't, I wasn't an eyewitness. But we actually have the accounts of the eyewitnesses. We have reliable uh, history of what actually happened. And so we have confidence. We have confidence that Jesus was crucified. We have confidence that Jesus did rise again from the dead. And uh, we have confidence that that, because of personal experience, but also because of the, the faithfulness of Scripture, we have that confidence that that is something that the world needs to hear. They need to know that, that death is not the final word. That you can be right for, with God and that God himself wants to forgive your sin and, and bring you into relationship with you. Such an intimate relationship that you would call him father and he would call you son or daughter. So we're his witnesses. That's the first thing. It's the purpose of, of this Acts 1-8 promise when Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. First, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell my story. When I'm gone, you're going to tell my story. You're going to tell the truth. And, and the, the, you're going to talk about the kingdom of God, how God is so very available to people that they can be in relationship with him. So you're going to do that. That's the purpose. But then here, here's the plan. This verse tells us the plan, right? The, the first thing we learned, it, we're supposed to be witnesses. But here's the plan. We're supposed to start with Jerusalem. Go to Judea and Samaria, which is a little closer around Jerusalem. And to the ends of the earth. Right? Jerusalem, your own city, Judea, the whole area around, like your province or your nation, Samaria, that ethnic group that you really can't stand. That's what the Samaritans were. That's why it's really important for us to learn how to take the gospel to people who are very different from us, and especially the people that you like the least that are different from you, because they did that. And to the ends of the earth. They didn't even know how far the end of the earth was at that point. Christopher Columbus hadn't done any sailing at that point. But Jesus knew to the ends of the earth. So we get the purpose, we get the plan, and then what's most essential to pull it all off is the power. Right? The power is to accomplish the purpose according to the plan. And we can't be Jesus' witnesses like we need to be. And we can't spread his life and his love and his salvation to the ends of the earth like he called us to do without the power of God. We can't do it. Fortunately, he's willing to give us all the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's willing to empower all of us to be his witnesses and to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. Now let me give you a little bit of a heads up. So let's read verse 1-8, Acts 1-8 one more time. And then I'm going to give you some, some uh, little trailer moments about the book to come here. So Acts 1.8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Jesus said this is going to happen. What happened? What happened? Let me give you just a few tiny snapshots. If you, when you get reading and you get into Acts chapter 2, you're going to find out this verse. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
So there's about 12 different people groups that sort of showed up to hear them, and they spoke in their languages. Well, how are you going to communicate with, you know, language barriers are pretty solid, right? I mean, we got Google Translate, but if you ever tried using that, you get it wrong. No, no, Google gets it wrong. <laughs> it's not 100% foolproof. Here, in this point, God allowed them to speak in languages and allowed those from other nations to understand those, what they were saying. Amazing thing, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus in one shot. That's the power of God. Can't make that happen. That's the power of God. So that's what happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.8 says, Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember Peter, the biggest chicken of the bunk? The, the biggest, like, I'm all that guy, and yet really big chicken? You notice how those often come in a combination? You know that guy who's really tough at work, but, you know, starts to whimper when it really gets hard? Uh, that's the same sort of person, right? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, he got arrested, him and John got arrested, he stood up and spoke to the rulers and elders, and, uh, and it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So in Acts 4, we read this story about them being arrested, totally intimidated by the powers that existed at that day, and had the boldness to stand up to those powers, when Peter, just a little while ago, couldn't stand up to a teenage girl. That's what filling with the Holy Spirit does. Acts 4.31, it says after they prayed, and this is after they've been threatened to never speak in the name of Jesus again, the pla they prayed together. A after they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They weren't intimidated. They weren't cowed. They, they responded with boldness because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 6, 5 Stephen, the first martyr, was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and the Jews couldn't withstand the wisdom by which he spoke. And it says at the end of his speaking to the people that he was, he was speaking to, he says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. This is as they're starting to stone him to death. As they're starting to stone him to death, it says, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's what the filling of the Holy Spirit enabled him to do. He enabled him to die for his faith, the very first of the Christian martyrs. Acts 9, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. He placed his hands on Saul, the biggest enemy of the Christians in the early days, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. His life was transformed. He went from being the Christian's biggest enemy to being their biggest advocate, and he began to talk about Jesus everywhere he went. He became a witness, and he took the gospel in ever-expanding circles. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit did. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 11 says, Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and faith, Holy Spirit and faith, and a large company was added to the Lord because of Barnabas' ministry. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 13.9, then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, oh, no, I'm not going to read that one because that's for the Lord of the Rings, guys. Okay? Acts 13. Awesome chapter. You've got to read that. I just want you to read it on your own because it's so good. Okay? But he stood up to a very intimidating person uh, in an awesome confrontation. Really cool. All right. 
These are the things. So, so Jesus said, you will be empowered. And in the Luke account, he says, you'll be clothed with power from on high. To be my witnesses, to take the gospel where it needs to go, you need to be empowered. We need to be empowered. I need to be empowered. Some of the scriptures, uh, I think I'm just quoting out of Ephesians here. I don't have the exact reference with me, but it, sa- it has a, a really interesting um, comparison. Listen to this one. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, drink socially and temperately. No, no, that doesn't actually go there at all. It just says, instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a very interesting. So, I was reading that just recently, and I thought, man, what, what a weird contrast. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I thought, maybe one of the comparisons that's made here is this is the frequent thing to do, right? For a lot of people getting drunk on, well, whatever, pick your, pick your, your, your liquor, is a frequent thing to do. It's the weekend, you know? He says, don't. Instead of getting drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, be filled with this Holy Spirit. Now, here's where, you know, I come into this message, I'm like, man, we come from so many different theological backgrounds. I'm just going to be stepping on toes all the way through this thing. (laughs) I haven't got it all figured out. But I'm pretty confident of this, that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time, 30-years-ago event that never is revisited. Some people are like, oh, I don't like you now. I'm not sure. It seems like just like getting drunk on wine might be a regular occurrence, that being filled in the Holy Spirit might be a repeat as well. When I look at Acts chapter uh, 2, it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit on the, on the day of Pentecost, the, you know, in the 10 days up to this moment. But then it's just a couple chapters later, it says the room is shaken and they're filled with the Holy Spirit again. And I'm like, but not the guys who already, but maybe the guys who already. I must admit, I don't have it all fil- figured out, but I'm convinced that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced that this promise is for us. I'm convinced that what Jesus is saying here is not something that's a throwaway or a fries on the side, not necessary. I think this is really absolutely essential. Let's read verse 1-8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Anyone know who D.L. Moody is? Ever heard that name, D.L. Moody? Yeah, a few people do. He was an evangelist in the 1800s. Quite uh, um, significant in the lives of hundreds and thousands of people. It says, in the summer of 1871, this is just an account of his life, two women of D.L. Moody's congregation felt an unusual burden to pray for Moody that the Lord would give him the baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire. Moody would see them praying in the front row of his church, and he was irritated. But soon he gave in, and in September began to pray with them every Friday afternoon. He felt like his ministry was becoming a sounding brass with little power. On November 24, 1871, 
Moody's church building was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. He went to New York to seek financial help. Day and night, he would walk the streets desperately for the touch of God's power in his life. Then suddenly, one day, in the city of New York, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. This is Moody's own words. One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I've had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. All the world would be small dust in the balance to me. So he prayed and he obeyed and he waited just like the early followers waited there 10 days. He prayed and he obeyed and he waited and of course he couldn't make the spirit come. The spirit came suddenly. But when it came, he noticed the effect. He noticed the effect. And he noticed that that effect had a lot to do with being a witness and seeing people come to, to Christ and faith in Christ. So how do we, how do we get this, this special power that's so essential for an expanding witness for Christ? How do we as a church or how do we as individuals have this fullness of the Spirit in our lives, be baptized in the Spirit. Let me give you four things. I can't, you know, it's hard to put a formula on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Let me give you four things that I think are pointing in the right direction. Okay? Four things that are pointing in the right direction. Number one, I would say immerse yourself in the Bible. Immerse yourself in the Bible. If you're going to witness, if that's the end goal of the filling of the Holy Spirit, that you're going to witness, what are you going to witness with? Well, throughout centuries and generations, people have witnessed with the truth that's found in God's Word. Right? So if you, if you want your musket to fire, pack it with powder. <laughs> Immerse yourself in the Word of God. I encourage you. I think that's a great first step. Here's the second one. Believe the word of God. You say, well, I thought we just dealt, dealt with that. No, it's a little different. You see, you're gonna, when you immerse yourself in the word of God, you're going to find that, he, that the word of God says things, about, um, says things about God, obviously. It'll say things about the world, you know, creation. It'll say things about what's going on in the world, some of the dynamics, spiritual dynamics that are at work. It'll tell you things about yourself. So you're immersing yourself in the Word of God and you're reading the Word and then suddenly you're having these things come back to your remembrance. You know, you're at work, you're at school, you're by yourself, wherever, and suddenly these things are going to come back to your mind because you're immersed in them and you're going to go, yeah, yeah, that truth, that reality. And uh, the next thing to do with that is to believe that, to stand on that, to accept that, to receive that. And say, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's truth. Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want faith to rise in your life, the confidence that comes from faith, the ability to share your faith with other people, starts with the word of God. Getting the word of God into you. And you'll grow in the confidence of what you know to be true. Here's the third one. You want to seek the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, pray earnestly for it. 
and fast. Pray earnestly for it and fast. Now, a lot of times we talk about fasting where, you know, the Bible often refers to a food fast, right? And that's still applicable for Christians today to go without food. It's a strange thing for a lot of people. Many people have never tried it, but uh, you, you, you put away food and eating so you have time for prayer. Not just only so you have time for prayer, the hunger pains actually remind you that what you're truly hungry for is for God. You say, no, I'm really hungry for food. Well, you are also hungry for that. But it's a reminder that either you are hungry for God or you want to be hungry for God. If your hunger stimulus for God has shut off, just like hunger stimulus, I've been told, shuts off just before a person starves to death, that's not a good sign. So fast from food. But in our world, I would say fasting for food is still a great thing to do. But more and more, I'm convinced that a media fast is becoming almost an emergency necessity for Christians. If you don't fast media, when will you be able to pray? Stats tell us that we look at our phones six, every six minutes of the entire waking day. Teenage girls text 3,000 to 4,000 texts per day. Per day. It's not just Christians who are talking about this. Secular people are saying, this is probably going to be disastrous. I mean, unless you own Google or Facebook, this will end badly for you. The inability for people to actually reflect, to meditate, to think, and to pray. To actually see that wiped out in one generation. Think about how, it's unnerved me, even to hear secular commentators speak about this reality. It's got me thinking an awful lot. I got really, you know, quite accustomed to my smartphone It's really hard to go to the bathroom without it. There's no app on it for going to the bathroom, but somehow they're connected. I don't want to lose what I think we could be losing. But if we don't fast media, odds are we aren't going to pray. So pray for it. Fast. Set aside time to do it. But here's the last one. I'm talking about immerse yourself in the Bible, believe the word, Pray earnestly for it and fast, but then obey the Holy Spirit. The point of all this is that you would obey the Holy Spirit, that you'd sense the Holy Spirit's nudging to go do something, and that he would empower you to do it. So I would say, start obeying. When you get that sort of nudge inside of you, that sort of check that I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that, respond to that. Don't silence that. Don't shut that up, but respond. Right? He's going to empower those who do his work, but why would he empower anyone who doesn't intend to use his power? Stay sensitive to his nudgings, and I believe you'll be in the right place. Again, these are just directional things. Immerse yourself in the Bible, believe the word of God, pray earnestly for it and fast, and obey the Holy Spirit, and they're just getting you in the right place, just like those first disciples who said, who were told to stay in Jerusalem, until you receive this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Stay until you receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? How long is this going to take? 
They didn't know. We don't know. But God wants to bring us into a place where we'll be empowered. I can think of two. I was thinking back at different times in my life. So let me get, tell you three really quickly. When I was about 13, I went to a youth retreat. I grew up in Pentecostal circles, very Pentecostal. Went to this youth retreat. There was um, um, some college students there. They were praying for kids. Uh, it was very much, you know, uh, very traditional Pentecostal message. Come receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And so I had an experience there. And I think God really used that. I still look back on that uh, fondly and positively. Um, but I'm going to tell you about two other experiences. Because in the path of, I think, there's a refilling that I believe in that. Second one was, um, I was probably about 16 at the time, and our youth group was going to do a huge outreach into the city of Brandon. That's where I went to high school in Brandon, Manitoba. And we're going to do a huge outreach into the city, and uh, we're preparing this big drama presentation, and um, anyhow, but uh, there's practice times, and then there was like prayer times. And I think the prayer times were just as much as the practice times, which actually now that I look back on it, that was a pretty good idea. Because um, some of us were like, well, you know, as long as I'm going to heaven, I don't care if anyone else does. And so we prayed and prayed, and then God began to put a burden on our hearts and change. I remember uh, with tears many times just sort of really working through, do I want, do I care about other people's souls? Do I actually care? And, you know, it's, you know, you could say, well, that's adolescence. You're coming out of those, those adolescent years when the world's all about you. But you know what? It's easy for the world to be all about me in non-adolescent years as well. <laughs> so God was doing a cool work. It was really neat. And then we did actually see, actually a couple hundred people came to Christ through that whole experience. It was really amazing. But the, for me, the even almost most amazing part was that the learning to pray and intercede for people who are far from God and, and that God loves and he wants to bring them into relationship and just getting that heart for other people and, and souls. So that was a really significant time where God, I, I really felt like it was almost like God was doing a new thing in me, refilling me with his spirit. Here's the third one. I'd finished Bible college and I was just going to head out with this drama and evangelism team to head all, all over Western Canada. We were going to do, uh, it, it was called Life Force, that was the name of it. And we we're going to go all over Western Canada and I didn't want, I was going to do this for one year. I didn't want to waste this year. I really wanted to see people come to know Jesus. And yet I had baggage in my life I needed to deal with. And it became more and more apparent. The more I prayed, the more I sought God, the more this baggage just surfaced. And I just think that's God's grace to allow that to surface. Obviously, it was his way of saying, this is time. It's time to deal with these things. And uh, so God allowed all sorts of things to surface. It was a time of incredible soul searching. Um, I realized to make some of the things right in my life that I needed to make right, I was going to have to go way back to some people and, uh, um, and confess sin that I'd done, some of it secretly, some of it openly. I was going to ask. I asked for forgiveness from tons of people. Tons of people. It was humiliating, most of it. But God was taking me through a process, and in that process, I think the, the end result that, for me, that came out of it was at the end... I was about ready to say, you know what? I don't need my reputation. It was sort of shattered through this process, or I felt that it was actually completely obliterated. I don't need this, 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 this. I need you, God. I need you. And at the end of the day, I just had this sense of abandonment. So as I went on Life Force, I had this sense that I got nothing left. 
I better go out and tell people about Jesus because <laughs> I got nothing else going on because, you know, now everybody knows what a sinner I am and how, what a loser I am. And, and uh, I better just go out in there and hopefully God will use me. But God brought me to the right place. And I, re- I really believe that process was another filling of the Holy Spirit season in my life. Now, I pray for you guys. I pray for me as well that God would do it again. That God would do it again. God would bring me through another season. Just like Jesus said to his disciples, wait. Wait for this power. Wait for this power. You know, if I, I want to make room in my life for the Holy Spirit. I want to make room in my life. I want to immerse myself in the Word. I want to believe the Word. I want to, I want to pray and fast. I want to be responsive to his nudges and do what the Holy Spirit asks me to do. And in all of that, just be wide open. What if this Holy Spirit doesn't come and fill me for days, weeks, months? Well, there's still, still great to just keep going for the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. If that's where you're at, just keep going. But I believe that God wants to empower us. I'll close with this illustration. This is um, Martin Lloyd-Jones he, uh, from his book, Joy Unspeakable. He, 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 he describes the difference in, from his perspective between common Christian living like good Christian living, and what happens when the Holy Spirit clothes a person with power or comes upon a person with this unusual power. I think he has a very unique perspective on it. He says it's like a child is walking along and holding his father's hand, and all is well. The child is happy. He feels secure. His father loves him. He believes that his father loves him, but there's no unusual urge to talk about this or sing about it. It's true, and it's pleasant. Then suddenly, the father startles the child by reaching down and sweeping him up into his arms and hugging him tightly and kissing him on the neck and whispering, I love you so much. And then holding the stunned child back so that he can look in his face and saying with all his heart, I am so glad you are mine. Then hugging him once more with unspeakable warmth and affection. Then he puts the child down and they continue their walk. This, Lloyd-Jones says, is what happens when a person is baptized with the Holy Spirit. A pleasant and happy walk with God is swept up into an unspeakable new level of joy and love and assurance and reality that leaves the Christian so utterly certain of the immediate reality of Jesus that he is overflowing in praise and more free and bold in witness than he ever imagined he could be. The child is simply stunned. He doesn't know whether to cry or shout or fall down or run. He is so happy. The fuses of love are so overloaded they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that he wasn't thinking about at the time but that pop up every now and then are gone. And in their place is utter and indestructible assurance so that you know that you know that you know that God is real and that Jesus lives and that you are loved and that to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. And as you walk on down the street, you can scarcely contain yourself, and you want to cry out, my father loves me, my father loves me. Oh, what a great father I have. What a father, what a father. Can you stand with me? This morning, I just want to invite you on the journey. Straight, simple, I hope it's clear. 
that we go on a journey in the next six weeks that sets us up for much more than six weeks. Immersed in the word, believing the word, praying and fasting to seek the infilling of the Holy Spirit and being obedient to the nudges that the Holy Spirit gives.